right, well, if you've got a Bible this morning, we're in the book of Nehemiah. That's right after Ezra. Um, They're in the um, Old Testament. And um, right before you get to Esther. And so... We are we have started a new series in Nehemiah. We started last week. We're calling this series Rebuilt. And uh, last week we uh, we looked at rebuilding with God. And this week we're looking at the topic of rebuilding together in Nehemiah. We're going to be in chapter 2, verse 9, through chapter 3, verse 32. Big chunk of scripture we're going to cover this morning. You know, the best stories um, in in your life, when you go back and think about all the uh, the funny stories, the memorable stories, all those things usually happened in the context of community and other people being around, right? You usually don't go back and tell stories. And Remember the time that I was alone playing video games? Remember the time that I went golfing by myself? Nobody wants to hear those stories. Um, nobody cares about them, to be honest with you. They're just not as cool as the stories when other people were there to laugh at you and make fun of you for whatever it was that happened to you um, or to celebrate with you. But even the best moments in our life, not just the best stories, but the best moments, your, your wedding, right? The birth of your child. Um, all those things, we, see, we celebrate them in some way with other people, right? Uh, holidays. Uh, the biggest days of the year, the days that we take off work, right, and we shut everything down, Thanksgiving and Christmas or Fourth of July or whatever it is, we always, those things are spent in community with other people because life is better together. God has made us and wired us in such a way to do life with other people, to enjoy life with other people. That is the reason for which God has created us. One of those reasons is to live in community together. And this morning I want us to see... That is, as we seek to fulfill our individual and corporate callings in the kingdom of God, whatever God's calling is on your life as a believer, if you're a Christian this morning, that's to be done in the context of community together. Uh, God has a role for you to play in His kingdom as a child of God, and God has a role for us as a church, I believe, to play in His kingdom as well. And both the individual and corporate callings are to be lived out in that context of community. You'll never reach your full potential of Christ living on an island. Full potential in Christ. Uh, whatever your full potential is as a child of God, it will not and cannot be reached by yourself outside the context of the community of the church. That is not the way in which Jesus designed it. And the church will never reach its full potential as a church in Christ without functioning and living as a biblical community. Those things just don't happen. God has wired it to work in such, such a way. We will short circuit. Things will burn up. We will burn out. We are made to live in community. Now, if you're not a Christian this morning, you need to understand your big takeaway, I'm going to give it to you at the front end of this, is that the Bible teaches that life is meant to be lived with others. And that's why even non-believers, even non-Christians, even the atheists can enjoy being around other people and can understand the importance of community. Since the beginning of civilization, we have gathered together in communities and neighborhoods and cities and zip codes and all those sort of things as it's become more and more organized and ornate because we know life is better and we can accomplish more when we do life together. That's why cities accomplish so much. The best hospitals, the, 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 the best of everything tends to be in large cities. It's because you get so many people together, so, so many uh, Imago Day, image of God, gathered into one confined place to challenge one another, to inspire one another, and great things tend to happen in those contexts. That's why you see things happen. That's why you, that what happens in large cities tends to flow down to the rest of the country and to the rest of the world. It's because there's so many people made in the image of God, residing in that place, fulfilling their, um, their, their, their design of what they're created to do um, in terms of living in community. 
So if you're not a Christian, you, you understand that already. That's just kind of a common grace thing God's revealed to us. And the church is to be a community of, of Christ followers who are seeking to advance the gospel and thus His kingdom for His glory. And when you come to Christ as a believer, you get a new identity, right? Your identity is no longer your sin. Your identity is now in Christ. You get a new heart that desires to live out that new identity and you get a new family. To live in that identity and live out that new nature and that new heart. You get all those things the very moment you say yes to Jesus. Now, in Nehemiah's day, they were living, looking forward to the coming of Christ. As I said last week, they, they were looking forward to Christ coming the first time, the Messiah being born. And in a lot of ways, this is you're getting towards the end of what we have here in terms of the history of Israel before Messiah comes. And because of the Babylonian exile that it happened a little over a hundred years before Nehemiah's day. The people have been scattered. The city has been ransacked. The walls are down and burning. They, they've tried to start rebuilding. The king in Nehemiah's day had made them stop doing that. And so the, everything's kind of a mess. And so Nehemiah is living out his calling of bringing people back together, helping repopulate the city, but ultimately to build up the walls and reestablish life in the city of God, life in the city of Jerusalem. And Nehemiah had a role to play in God's kingdom. And today, we live looking forward to Jesus coming back. Right? And, the, and in a sense, the last pages of history have been written. We live in what the Bible calls the last days. The next step is we're looking to Jesus. And we're wondering when Jesus is going to come back. And there's coming a day when He's literally coming back to the earth. We believe and teach that as Christians. And so, we have a role to play as we seek to advance His kingdom in our day. Nehemiah advanced God's kingdom in his day. We advance it in our day as we play our role. Now, last week we saw Nehemiah receives word that the city walls are still burned down and in disarray and it breaks his heart. And we saw that he becomes very burdened about this and he begins to pray. Right? He begins to seek God and God's help and to call out to God and prays a very scripture rich prayer. And then <laughs> that involves also repentance. And then also, not only does he get burdened about the situation. Not only does he pray, he surrenders his very position, his very job as cupbearer to the king. He begins to realize he can use that and leverage that for God's kingdom. And he basically surrenders that in that prayer to the Lord and has made up his mind that he's going to the king. And then he is a man of action. He goes to the king and asks the very king that has said that the building in Jerusalem must stop. He goes back to that king who is his boss and says, King, I want the building to start back up again and I want to lead the charge and I want you to send me an okay it. Very bold request. It's everything on the line. And we see that he prospers because it tells us there at the end of our text last week that he was, the Lord's hand was with him for good. So he was joining God in what God was already doing and moving in his day. And so he, was, he moved from this place of just having a burden to seeing action in his life. And this morning we're going to see not only did he choose to rebuild with God, he knew that for him to be successful he had to rebuild with others. And that the people of God have to choose to rebuild together, have to choose to advance God's kingdom and to see the revival of God's people in their day, that has to be done in the context of community. So look with me in chapter 2, verse 9. Now you're going to get to experience a boy from Alabama reading a lot of names that we don't say in Alabama. All right? I'm used to names like Bubba and Jethro and, you know, anyway, Zeke. You know, I don't know. But this, so this is, just bear with me because, you know, I'm, uh, I'm not an Old Testament um, Hebrew. So anyway, verse 9. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river. So he's, he's left the king, right, and he's on his journey. And gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. 
But with Senballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite, servant, heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So, I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night, by the valley gate, to the dragon spring, and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. And I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in. How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good. And also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, Let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sambalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper. And we his servants will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Chapter 3. We'll read through verse 5. Then Elisha the high priest rose up with his brothers the priests and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the tower of the hundred, as far as the tower of Hananel, and next to him the men of Jericho built. And next to them, <coughs> and next to them Zachar the son of Imri built. The sons of Hesaniah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts and its bars. And next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakaz, repaired. And next to them, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, son of Meshezabel, repaired. And next to them, Zadok, the son of Bana, repaired. And next to them, the Tekoites repaired. But their nobles would not stoop to serve their lord. And so we'll stop there. As it goes on, there is basically you've got a list of names and the organization for how they went about rebuilding the wall. And it'll list a gate and then who's building and who's kind of... And it'll just go around the city in a circle explaining to you who's building and what they were doing. And we'll talk about that a little bit in a minute. And so chapter 3 is kind of the nuts and bolts of how the wall got rebuilt. Now, Nehemiah knew going into this that he couldn't do it alone. Anybody would know that. This was a task too big for one person. He knew that as the commentator James Hamilton writes, he needed the people of God to accomplish the will of God. And that's the way it's always designed. The people of God fulfilling the will of God. God uses people to accomplish what He wants to accomplish. And what we can learn from this text is that the big theme here is this idea of them coming together to build and rebuild the walls and, and to accomplish what God's will for them was in their particular time to help advance the kingdom of God. And there are three kind of key things that I, that I see here. And I call it head, heart, and hands. And for any community, and for any people, I believe, it's kind of just a general rule. you kind of got to have these things to move forward. And we're going to see that Nehemiah, we're going to see, first of all, had his head in the game. And we're going to see that their hearts became united together. And we're going to see they put their hands to work. So look here at verses... Um, Kind of down verses 9 through 16, that big chunk of Scripture. And we see Nehemiah getting his head in the game. Now, Nehemiah was a planner. 
a master planner in a large way. He had all these grand plans and he comes to the province beyond the river and those governors that he knew he was going to need to be giving letters to in order to get through because remember the king had said stop the building so now he's going to build and the enemies of Jerusalem, the enemies of Israel that were around that area, they weren't going to like to see this so he was going to need a letter from the king saying if you stop me, you're disobeying the king and your head's on the line, right? And So he has to present the letters and it tells us that these guys, Samballat and Tobiah, uh, they don't, it displeased them to someone to come to, 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 to seek the welfare of Israel. These enemies, they didn't like it. And that they were the ones who had gotten the king to, in the first place, stop the building. And now someone's got him to reverse his order. And they don't like it a bit. They're not happy about this. And we're going to learn more about that next week and about their opposition and the adversity that they face in the building. And then in verse 11, he gets to Jerusalem. And he's there three days, and we don't know what he does there, but he's he, resting, he's praying, we don't know, but he doesn't do anything, doesn't really talk to anybody, doesn't tell him why he's there, he just kind of hangs out. He's kind of just the new weird guy in town that nobody knows why he showed up. And then he goes out late at night, and he begins to sneak around, right? And what we see here is Nehemiah using wisdom. We see him planning and strategizing, just like we saw when he went to the king. He's going in secrecy because he doesn't want to tip his hands to the enemies that he knows exist around the area and to the traitors that can live within Jerusalem that would tip their hands to the enemy. So he's just being wise, making wise plans. And he goes and he inspects the gates and begins to observe the situation. So I believe Nehemiah had a distinct plan going into all this because when the king starts asking him questions back in the beginning of chapter 2, he had answers. How long is it going to take? He had an answer for how long it was going to take. What you going to need? He knew what he was going to So he had a plan. But now he's getting there and he needs to see, you know, is it going to work? Uh, do I have enough? Do I, how much wood am I going to need? Um, how many people am I going to need? Uh, I told the king I could do it in this allotted time frame. Can I? He had a plan. He had a vision. But now he's there and he's seeing how bad the situation is and he's got to assess it. And so he's thinking and he's planning. His head's in the game. He's, he's thinking through. He's not, he's not going through this wishy-washy. He's not shooting from the hip. He is prayerful, he's prayerfully went through this, but he's thinking logically and strategically about what needs to happen. And then it says he had not yet told, and it lists a group of people, right? And it says, and the rest who were to do the work, it calls them. The rest who were to do the work. He had the plan in his mind. He knew that other people were going to have to do the work. Others was not Nehemiah's plan B if he got there and somehow realized he couldn't do this alone. He knew he couldn't do it alone. He knew this was a group thing. And this was about God and His people, not simply about God and Nehemiah. Now, I think we learned some things from Nehemiah in the context of this that we can even apply today. Whether it is getting your life back on track or striving to reach your full potential in Christ or fulfilling your calling in God's kingdom or as a church seeking to reach our full potential for God's glory, we always have to be assessing the situation. We always have to be thinking wisely. We always have to be looking at the problems and the things that concern us that are around us. This requires thinking through problems and issues and struggles and failures. What to do and how to do it well. What, what is not being done well. What needs to change. What needs to change in my life. What, what needs to happen to bring about these changes. These are just things we have to be thinking through. The Bible says in Proverbs 21.5 that the plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance, but everyone who is hasty comes only to poverty. That is a general proverb that is generally true. That when you go through things hastily and you don't think and you don't plan and you don't think ahead... There's poverty, but there's abundance for the one who diligently plans, right, and, and, and seeks to do the Lord's will that way. Proverbs 23, 3 and 4 says, By wisdom a house is built, and by understanding it is established. By knowledge the rooms are filled with all precious and pleasant riches. It says by wisdom the house is built, right? So we need wisdom, we need discernment, we need, we need a knowledge, we need to know what we're doing. We need to be a thinking people, right?
Nothing can get us in more of a mess in our individual lives and as a corporate body, as a church, than not thinking. Than not thinking ahead and not thinking clearly. You know, when I... Uh, I used to have to go uh, for other organizations I worked for. I had to do uh, site visits, right? And so uh, when I worked for one organization, we did citywides. I would go and I would, I would actually just go stay a week at a time in the city for months at a time to meet with people and to set up things and to make sure everything was in order for the big citywide evangelistic event that was going to happen there. Or when I worked and I did um, conference work, I would go ahead of time. We were doing a conference in Dallas. I have to fly to Dallas. I have to meet with the convention center. I have to walk the place. I have to see what's going on there. We we have to, how, where are we going to do registration at? Do they have a place big enough for us to do load in and load out? How are we going to move three or 4,000 people in and through this building? And you have to think through all those things before you don't just decide that when you get there, right? Day of. I remember doing mission trips, right? You go ahead of time to the place. I remember going to Chicago, taking students to Chicago, going to the place. You've got to look ahead of time. Where are we going to stay? What are we doing? What's going to be done? And so somebody's walked the path before everybody walks the path. It's just, it's just planning. It's just do, it's doing the front work. It's the guy that gets up early in the morning to go to the store before he opens it to make sure everything's in order from the night before. It's the restaurant owner that makes sure the kitchen's got everything it's going to need before the restaurant opens. It's just smart. Right? And, and God's not opposed to being smart with your life. You know, the, Jesus wants you to be holy, but He gave us a whole book called Proverbs that tells me Jesus wants you to be wise too. And part of being holy, by the way, is being wise. Wisdom is a sin issue at its very core. And when we choose to walk in folly and we choose to walk in foolishness, we are not walking in the way of Christ. God wants us to walk in wisdom. So, We've got to honestly and clearly analyze and assess our role in the kingdom as a people and as individuals. What needs to be assessed in your life today? You say, I know I need to change. Okay, if you really thought through that, what does that mean? What's that going to take and what's that going to cost you? It's another thing to say, you know, I realize I've got some problems over here. It's another thing to actually begin to sit down, think through, and make a plan to fix it, right? It's another thing to, 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 to make the phone calls, right? It's, 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 another, it's another thing to have the conversations, to balance the checkbook, whatever it takes, right? It's one thing to think, I need to fix this. It's another thing to begin to do something about it. And we see here with Nehemiah, he's, he's, he's thinking ahead. He's planning ahead, and that's just wise leadership, and it's going to benefit the people of God. Number two, we see, though, he knew that the people had to come together, and they had to have one heart, one purpose, one heartbeat. In verse 17, he says, then I said to them, well, who's them? Well, in verse 16, it's the people that he had not said anything to yet. The people he hadn't told about what was going on. Then he said, then I said to them, you see the trouble we're in. He's not telling them anything they don't know. You see how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And then he tells them about the hand of God that was upon him and how he had favor with the king. And so what we see here is Nehemiah helping the people have one heart, a united heart. And the first thing he does is he rallies the people. He gets them together there in verse 17. And for people to really come together and accomplish something big, they, they have to be united. They have to come together. Now, some of these people had been there for years, for generation, and had really seen no real lasting change other than the few things that happened with the rebuilding of the temple and the, the attempting of the walls and all that, and then that being stopped. And so, imagine, very frustrated. It, it, had been, it had been over a hundred years since Jerusalem had really flourished. And so, these were st- some of them, all, all they really know about what Jerusalem could be is the people where God's people come to the city where God's people come together as well as stories of grandparents and great grandparents tell them. His memories of what used to be. And so Nehemiah has to get them together and, and, he, and he, he realizes they have to understand some things. He knew for them to unite with one heart to accomplish the goal, they had to be stirred. They had to be awakened. The first thing he wants them to do is he wants them to see the problem. Now they knew the problem. 
They walked past the problem every day. They, they saw the pile of rocks and, and mess that the city walls were. They knew that they were open to, to attack from enemies at any time. They knew that they were a humiliation, that more than likely all the other cities around them had rebuilt their walls and they hadn't. They knew that they were a laughing stock and that they were a mockery among the people. They knew that, but they, it's, it's one thing to just kind of know what's wrong. It's another thing for, to really begin to feel what's wrong like Nehemiah had when he had that burden. So he wants them to really see and feel the problem. Because Nehemiah knew something. You can't begin to rebuild and do something great for God without honesty and clarity. And he's just being honest. He looks at him and he says, look, we're just a laughing stock. We're, we're in trouble. And we're in derision. Shame. People are mocking us. And so we have to be willing to look at our lives and the areas of our lives. And we have to be willing to, you know, to call a spade a spade. Right? You know what that means? And just be honest. Call a spade a spade. It is what it is. To not pretty it up, not decorate it and call it something that it's not. And that's what Nehemiah does here. It starts with honesty. Admitting your addiction, for instance, is more than an unpolite habit. Or admitting your marriage needs, more, needs help and not just time. Right? And admitting that there's an issue to yourself, first of all. But corporately, that's the situation too. As, as churches, as we real build together and advance God's kingdom, we have to be willing to look honestly at our churches and assess the health of our church. And, and if even in our church, we get real clear at North Park and go, okay, how do we become healthier? And be honest and say, this is where we're not doing well and this is where we're doing well. Because we haven't arrived and we won't arrive anytime soon until Jesus comes back. Maybe it will be soon. But he didn't just see the problem. Nehemiah wanted them they had to see the solution. Come, let us build the wall and put an end to this derision, right? The walls were a symbol of the, the mess that the people were in. Nehemiah made sure that the people knew the problem and that there was a problem, but he wanted them to realize that not only is there a problem that you're a part, you're a part of the problem, it's our problem, our trouble, our derision. He also says, I want you to see that, that you're a part of the solution. Let us rebuild. Yeah, 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 people listen. We're, we're all a part of the problem, but we're a part of the solution. Let us build together. See, for the people of God to come together to advance the kingdom of God, we have to understand that God does want to use people. He wants to use people. Even, even people that have walked by for years over rubble and broken walls and done nothing about it. He wants to use those people. That's who these people are. Some of them have been there for decades and haven't done anything. They, they haven't had that stirring that Nehemiah had. But God still wants, God wants to use them too. And now God's going to use Nehemiah and their life to help them see that they can do something great for the kingdom of God. But not only, it's not just about seeing the problem, seeing the solution. The big piece here is they had to see the Lord's hand. He says, I want you to understand that the Lord is blessing us. His hand is with me. And the biggest evidence of that was that the Lord had changed the king's heart. You know, they, they had seen, they'd gotten their hopes up before and they thought they were seeing this great revival of God's people. Then the king came in and stomped it out. As soon as somebody went to the king and said, Hey king, guess what's happening down here? You don't want that to happen. The king said, Okay, I exit. And now the king's changed his heart and mind and that was evidence, intangible evidence, that the Lord's hand was with them because now nothing could stop them because both heaven and earth had come together to make sure this thing had happened. And God's people sometimes need to be reminded that God is for us and not against us. We have to understand that. The world may be rooting against us, and they will. And we see plenty of people, and we're going to continue to see plenty of people that are coming against Israel, yet God is for them. This is God is for us. The people of God have been scattered for a generation. Many have lied and never seen Jerusalem flourish, as I mentioned. Merely a tall tale. But, so they had to understand, but now God was doing something new. Now God was stirring in them. And here's how they respond, right? They responded with that unified heart. 
Their, their goal, their mission is to end the trouble, right? To stop the, the, the walls were, was, was not an end in of itself. It was a means to an end. It, it wasn't really about that they just liked walls. It was they needed to be safe. And we need to show people this is where God's people are. And we need to end the, 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 the derision. We, we don't want to be in shame. And we, wanna, we, wanna, we want the people of God to flourish for the glory of God. And a part of that recipe is the walls that need to go back up, right? It wasn't just about the walls. It was bigger than that. And the vision here that he has and that they share together is for a Jerusalem with walls that was no longer in trouble and in shame. And so they say, they come together and it says, let us rise up and build. This was their corporate response to a corporate problem. And then it says, they strengthened their hands for the work. In other words, they begin to encourage one another. Uh, this was the moment, the catalyst that encouraged them for what all they were going to need for all the, you know, some trouble lot ahead. But this was the moment they could come back to and say, we drew our line in the sand and we said, we're going forward. This, this was, in sports terms, this was the huddle before the game. Right? Any sports team I ever played on, it didn't really matter the sport. Sometime before the game, the team gets together in a circle, everybody puts their hand in, and on one, two, three, you say something. Right? You say one, two, three, team. Right? One, two, three, win. Whatever it may be, winning, team, whatever. You, you said that. And then if things didn't go so well, and you're not playing like a team, and you're not winning, at halftime, the coach pulls you all back together, and he gives you a good talking to, and tries to inspire you to come back together and play as a team, so that you win. No matter the sport, that always happens. Right? That's this moment. This is what they're having, right? This is that moment where they're coming together. Everybody's putting their hand in together. It's team on three. It's win on three. It's let's go out and do what God's called us to do on three. This is that moment and you have to have that. You have to have that. And it says, but not only did they respond in this way, not only did they respond with a unified heart, they resisted a fearful heart. Look at verse 19. It says, now all of a sudden, the people are coming, these people, these enemies are coming back. Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite, and Geshem. They, they hear, of it, hear of what's going on. And probably because some people have been leaking information. And they jeered at us and despised us. They begin to make, they're, they're just, they're ragging on them, right? And they say this, what is this thing you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Now remember, they've seen letters from the king with the king seal saying that you can do this. Yet they say to the people now, are you, are you rebelling against the king? What are they doing? They're trying to cast doubt. They're, 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 in a sense, they're attacking Nehemiah's character and accusing him of lying. But they want the people to fear the king. They want the people to assume that to do the will of heaven, you've got to rebel against the, the will of earth. And sometimes you do. And, and, they, and they want them to, to be afraid. They want to intimidate them. And they're not intimidating Nehemiah. Nehemiah knows. But they're trying to break up the team before they ever get rolling. And the most repeated command in the Bible, the most repeated command in the Bible is not obey me, it is fear not. Because God knows we are a frail people who tend to fear. And fear is a crippling, paralyzing ordeal. In fact, to walk in paralyzing fear is to walk in sin. It's the most often repeated command in the Bible. So to walk in paralyzing fear is to sin. We're to walk by faith. We're to, we're to, we're to, we're to walk trusting in the Lord. And these people choose rather than to fear man, to fear these enemies, and to potentially fear the king, they choose to trust the Lord and what God is doing in their time. And when God's people come together as one to do God's work, and when they're on the same page, one purpose, one mission, mission they're living in, that's the sweet spot for the community of God. And we don't always get it perfect, but that's to be the intent of God's people. It's the intent in which we approach community. It's the intent in which the church approaches its mission is walking forward together in unison to accomplish God's will. And for us as a church, it's making disciples. And so when the people work together with a unified heart, 
to help the church become healthier, so more disciples can be made, so more disciples can be deployed. That's the way the church begins to reach its full potential. And that's the same way in your life. When you come together with the people of God and you no longer try to live the Christian life on an island doing the best you can, but come with God's people for accountability, for instruction, for encouragement, that's when you will begin to reach your full potential as a Christian. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 15. Romans 15 verses 5 and 6. He tells them this. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, I want you to come together in harmony and peace, this this unity, this one-heartness, so that with one voice, not a hundred voices, not a thousand voices, but with one voice, one anthem, one purpose, one mission, you may glorify God. I think about it like this. You go to a big football game, right? If you've ever been to a football game uh, or a soccer game, whatever, you know, a big stadium full of people, and, and they begin a chant, maybe at the beginning of the game, right? And everybody's chanting the same thing, right? Whatever your favorite school is. And everybody's in, in unison. That's why they have cheerleaders. That's why they have the PA system playing particular music. Everybody's singing the same song. Everybody's chanting the same thing. And it's loud. You can't even talk to the person beside you. It's just, it's just so loud. And they'll do that to intimidate the other team. They'll do that to awaken the defense on their own team. They'll do that just to kind of to show the unity and all that sort of stuff. It's much louder and much more powerful than when you get 100,000 people in a stadium and they're all just talking and saying whatever and they're just screaming whatever and shouting one another. That's why they have those things to bring everybody together with one voice, right? And that's kind of the picture we have here of what the way the church is to function with one voice, with unity, with there's power in that. And he says, and when we do that, we can glorify God. We can glorify God way better that way than we can be scattered in a million different directions. It's like laser focus. And so they had a unity of heart, one purpose, same mind. And by the way, that's the way the church is supposed to function. And that's not just like a pop dream preachery thing to say. That's not pie in the sky stuff. Yeah, we're supposed to have unity and we're supposed to have this and we're supposed to have that. No, like that, that's not like just like a leadership principle that something John Maxwell or somebody came up with. That, like that's like church 101. Like this is like the basics. Like trust Jesus, do church in unity. Like it, it's, it's the, you, you can't have church apart from that. You just can't. And like, you've got to have common mission, common purpose united in that. That's 101. And for us, that's making disciples. That's advancing God's kingdom. That's seeing men, women, boys, and girls come to know Jesus and grow in His likeness. and Everybody to reach their full potential in Christ. Now, it's one thing to think and to plan and, and to look for problems and how to resolve them. It's, it's, it's one thing to, to come together with one heart and unity and have your rah-rah moment. It's another thing to get your hands dirty. It's another thing to drop a brick on your foot. It's another thing to drive a nail through your hand. That's the risk you take when you actually do something and stop talking about it. And that's what he's going to have to do here next. He's rallied them together. They've had their rah-rah moment. And now it goes into chapter 3. And it, to be honest, you read it and you're kind of like, well, this is kind of boring. Well, work sometimes is. It's work. I mean, it's so-and-so's building over here and so-and-so's building over here. And this guy's over here and this guy's over here at the fish gate. This guy's over here in the great part of town, the dung gate. I mean, can you believe that? I mean, who wants to live here? <laughs> anyway, um, dung gate, fish gate, sheep gate. All the, it sounds like some scene from Lord of the Rings, right? And so there's weird names, right? The valley gate and the dragon's breath or whatever it was. I don't remember. It was crazy. And so and it's got all that in there because he wants us to see. You say, well, these names don't mean anything to me. Well, they meant something to them. This was the people who did something. 
<laughs> this was the people who were in that. It might not be a complete list of names. But the point is to show the organization, the purpose for which they came together. And that's the big third thing. They put their hands to the work. They put their hands to work. And that's what chapter 3 is all about. Because kingdom work is group work. I used to love group work in school. Y'all so, so like group work. I love group work. You know what group work was? It was when the teacher got up and said, now you've got to do this, this, and this. But what we're going to do is we're going to get together in groups of five. Well, I love that. That means I didn't have to do everything and I didn't have to be the smartest person. I could get together with somebody that was smart any more than I did. I didn't have to do everything, right? I mean, that meant I didn't have to just do work. I, we were going to get to socialize a little bit. It was going to be fun. It wasn't just going to be me over here with the nose in my book. It, I loved group work. It was easier when you got to do it together unless you had somebody in the group that was like, you know, a pain, right? And so I, I love group work. And kingdom work is group work. It's group work. It, that makes it messier sometimes. That makes it harder sometimes. But when it functions right, it makes it flourish. And it makes it even, it makes it go smoother. And the first thing you see here <laughs> with this group work, with their hands put together, is verse 1. Elisha the high priest rose up with his brothers and the priests and they built the sheep gate. Now, the first thing Nehemiah does is he lists a leader among the people and the key leader among the people to say, this guy built. Now, when you're going to get over to chapter 13 here in a few weeks and we're going to see this guy is going to do some stupid stuff and Nehemiah is going to want to just give him a really good talking to. And he's going to lead the people into some sin. He's going to make some mistakes. He's going to mess up. But here at this moment in time, years before that, first name on the list. Because leaders go first. Leaders step up. And that's what's happening here with Elijah. That's why his name is listed first. Leaders need to lead and lead to serve and leaders set the pace. Right? If leaders are jogging, then nobody is usually running. That's just the way they are the pace car that determines the, the speed at which things go. And if you're in a position of leadership, for instance, at our church, that means our names, and I'm on that list, so I have to, I'm not preaching to myself here, I'm preaching to the choir. Listen, our names are on the list first. That means we're first to volunteer. That means we're first to step up. That means we're the first to be held accountable. And that's the case with Elisha. That's the case with us today. Leaders go first. That doesn't mean you do everything. That doesn't mean you volunteer for everything. That doesn't mean you're in control of everything. It just means you step up and it means you can be counted on. And that's what it means to serve. That's what it means if you're, if you're in some sort of position of leadership here at North Park, whether that is as a deacon or as in a committee position or whatever it may be, and you're in some sort of position of leadership, that means we go first. But not only that, not only did the leaders step up, the people stepped up. Notice some things here in the people there. There's diversity. If you go through the chapter and just kind of scan it, there's different trade guilds, goldsmiths, perfumers, merchants, all these different trade guilds that are coming together. There are probably other guilds that may have contributed in other ways, like bakers and things. Maybe they're not building the wall. Maybe they're cooking the food for people to eat while they're working all day. This might not even be a complete list for all we know. Not only that, there's not just diversity though, there's organization. I quoted James Hamilton earlier in his Christ-centered exposition commentary. He has a great point in there about how this chapter lays out, it seems, the organization in which it happened. In other words, if you go through the gates, verses 1 and 2, the sheep gate, 3 through 5, the fish gate, 6 through 12, the old gate, then the valley gate to the dung gate, the dung gate, the fountain gate, the horse gate, inspection gate to the sheep gate. And you go, It's counterclockwise. It is going around the city showing you the organization in which... It, there's organization there. For us, we read it. We just see the list of names and stuff, but it's an organized list of names and it's an organized system in the way they went about things. Everyone's building in a place and everyone has a role. It's an incredible picture to illustrate how God brings people together for an organized and unified purpose, just like He does in the local church. The church is a group of diverse people. And the church is to be a group of organized people. 
to accomplish God's will. See, the Bible describes the church as the body of Christ, right? We've quoted this around here many a times. We're, we're one body with many members. There's diversity and there's unity. In that picture, you have unity, diversity, and you also have organization, the way in which the body works. Let me read to you from 1 Corinthians 12. 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12 through 14 says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. In verse 14 it says, For the body does not consist of one member, but many. What a picture we have there of unity, of diversity, of everybody doing their role. See, every Christian is a part of the body of Christ, and every Christian should be a contributing member to a local body of Christ. Because you have a unique gift. You have a new pl- unique place. You have a unique role. If you're in our small group ministry, and if you're a regular attender here, you should be. And if you're in our small group ministry, you know that over the last few weeks you've been learning about spiritual gifts. You've been, not this week, but the last few weeks, about spiritual gifts and how to employ them because everybody has a gift. And not just a gift, you've got abilities. And aren't your, your spiritual gifts what God gave you when you were converted. But you have abilities and talents that God birthed you with. Lost people have gifts and abilities and talents and all those sort of things. That's different than your spiritual gift, right? And so we have both of those things. And through the combination of knowing what God has wired me to be good at and and knowing how the new birth has created in me a new heart and a new nature and new spiritual gifts and what the Spirit's doing in my life, I can find my place and my role in serving in the kingdom. Every Christian has a place to build. Some people serve on... Different ministry teams. Or they serve as a deacon. They serve in several different things. They, they teach a small group. They work in the children's ministry. They work in the students' ministry. They, they have a gift of hospitality and they like to invite people into their home. They're gifted musically. They help lead worship on Sunday mornings. Some have a gift of encouragement and are always encouraging other people. Some are prayer warriors and they love, they're, they're the people that are always calling you and letting you know that they're praying for you. You don't have to have a title to serve. God help us, you don't have to be on a committee to serve. You understand that? You know, do you, do you, and nothing wrong with that. We've got committees and I praise God for them. We wouldn't get a lot done without them. We need them, but listen, understand something. If we say the only way you can serve is if your name is on a list of committees, that means we're always capping how many people can serve in God's kingdom. You understand that? How many people can serve in the local church? And you, that number doesn't always grow. So let's say you've got 50 committee positions. Well, that means you can have 50 people actively serving in your church. And that means everybody else just show up and sit down. And that's not at all the way God desired the, work to, the church to work. That's just one way to serve. Right? You can serve in a myriad of ways that don't have anything to do with what happens in this room. You can serve your local church at your place of work. You can be the connection point between where you work and where you live and this local church and reach people. There's a lot of ways you can serve. You can be an encourager. You can be a prayer warrior. You can be a gospel sharer. You can be someone that comes alongside people that are grieving and helps them mourn and helps them come. There's a lot of different ways you can serve in the local church that doesn't have a title. And if we don't serve in those ways, we shouldn't be serving in the ways that gives us titles. It all goes to get everybody has a way in which to function in the body of Christ. But without putting our hands to the work and finding our place in doing something, it's all just rah-rah. It's all planning and we're unified to do nothing. And nothing happens. It's kind of like the guy that says, I'm going to get a job. So he goes on a job hunt. And he gets to build his resume and he, and he prays and he, and he looks for, and he goes and he knocks on door after door after door to get the job. And then finally somebody calls him and they offer him the job and he just doesn't show up for work. He said, well that would just be silly. Well that's the same thing it is for, for the church to meet together and rally and to do all, and to not get busy serving and being the hands and the feet of Christ. 
You see in verse 5, some people just refused to work. It says, Next to them the Tekoites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve their Lord. Why did these people not stoop to serve? We can't be certain, but there is a possibility, in most likelihood, Tekoa um, was to the southeast of Jerusalem. And um, one commentator, Charles Fincham, points out that this was a very arid, area, very open country. And they could easily be attacked by, you know, there was a guy named Geshem the Arab, and he, his, his area was very close to Tekoa. And they were very vulnerable to attack from this Geshem, this enemy. And so it's very possible that these nobles say, we don't want to incite persecution from this guy. We, we, we're, we're kind of vulnerable out here on the edge, and, and we don't want this guy coming after us with his people and his army. And so us as the nobles, we're just not going to participate. It says they would not stoop to serve the Lord. By not helping, they were refusing to serve the Lord. And they missed out because of their fear. They missed out on being a part of the big thing that God was doing in their particular generation. Completely missed out on it. And they are recorded in history as the people that did nothing. And that's what fear does to us. That's what fear in your life does to you. It paralyzes you. See, churches are full of people that we never get off the bench. People that come and listen but never serve. They don't engage those around them. They don't participate in the life of the church or of the kingdom priorities. They don't, they don't seek first the kingdom at work or in their neighborhood or anywhere. And I don't mean this harshly, but don't let your contribution to the kingdom of God be holding a chair down on Sunday mornings. Gravity can do that. God made gravity to hold that chair where it is this morning. God made you for a lot more than that. You say, well, I can't, I can't, I can't. Uh, a lot of things some of us can't do. Some things we can't do. We can all do something. You can, I, I know people that they can get out and do a lot and they pray for people and they write encouraging cards and notes to people and they pick up the phone and they call people and tell them they love them and they're praying for them. And that is every bit as much a service as anything anybody else does. There's all kinds of ways you can serve. Even if you have physical limitations or age limitations because maybe you're young and you think, well, I can't do this, this, or this. And we'll let, but there's something you can do. There's, everybody has a role to play and there's something everyone can do. We all have a place at the table. We all have a place to build. And as we go through Nehemiah, we need to understand something. You're not a Christian. I want you to understand that being a Christian means, yes, you get a new identity in Christ, as we said earlier. You get a new heart that loves Him. But you also get that new family to serve Him and others together. You become a part of something that's, that's kind of bigger than you. And God's people are this very diverse group of people from different backgrounds and races and cultures and economic statuses. The kingdom of God breaks every barrier known to man and unites people in Christ. And as we go through Nehemiah, we need to be reminded that Jesus... is all, Old Testament points us to Jesus. That, that Jesus is about building something that's way better than walls that they built back then. Jesus is building His church, He says. When He comes on the scene in the New Testament, He says, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He's building His church. He's advancing His kingdom. He's building in the lives of people. You know, Nehemiah left a Persian palace. A cushy job. It was risky. I mean, he was the, you know, the wine taster. But he, he was a, a cushy job with the king. A well-to-do job. He left that behind and left the Persian palace behind to come risk his job, risk his life really, doing servant labor, building a brick wall, and doing something that wasn't quite as cushy and wasn't quite as elite as what he had been doing. But the Bible teaches us that the Lord Jesus became flesh and that the King of glory became a man and walked among us. 
And He came to identify with us, to bear our sin, to endure the wrath of God on our behalf on the cross, to be raised from the dead. And He stands victorious over sin, over death, and over hell. And all those who look to Him in repentance and faith, we know the Bible teaches, are saved, are rescued from our plight and changed. And we're made a part of God's people. The church that Jesus is building. He's the cornerstone. He's the foundation of that. Nehemiah points us to the better builder. He points us to the better leader. He points us to the one who is way more passionate and way more fiery about the holy name of God even than Nehemiah was, the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who loves God's people way more even than Nehemiah did, the Lord Jesus. 1 Peter 2, 4-5. A great verse about the church being built up. It says, as you come to Him, as you come to Jesus, a living stone, Rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. That's Jesus. Rejected by men, in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, church, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. To be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We are the people of God. God's church is not a building, it's not a chapel, it's not a place with a steeple. It's people. It's the people in this room. So they're scattered throughout our city today that are meeting in rooms and gathering in different kind of places that look all kinds of different ways. And there are big groups and there's little groups and there's big, you know, big churches and little churches. There are churches that are meeting in homes and there are churches that are meeting in gyms and there are churches that are meeting... They're just all over the city. Right? You go to other parts of the world, they're meeting in all kinds of different places. But that's the people of God. We, we are the people of God. And we've come to the living stone, the Lord Jesus, First Peter tells us, and we're being built up as a spiritual house. He is building us. He is, he is putting us together to be who He wants us to be. And we're offering up our very lives to Him in worship, right? This, this is the privilege of, of walking by faith in Christ. We, we are worshipers and we're living our lives sacrificially for Him. And so the question we come to, as we come to the end of all this, is simply this. Am I building? Am I being built up? By the Lord, am I, am I participating in this spiritual house? Am I being built up? And then am I building? Am I serving? Am I, am I, am I a being a part of the community? To be a part of the rebuilding of lives and the revival and renewal of God's people, the advancement of God's kingdom in our day and time, are we participating in that? See, Nehemiah had a role to play as he awaited the Messiah, and you and I have a role to play as we await the Messiah. And so we are to come together and build together, just as they did in their day. Just We're just not building walls. We're building people. And so we need to be the, the holy people of God. That's what those, those walls symbolize, that separateness, that safety, all those sort of things. We need to be that people, doing God's will together striving together to advance God's kingdom individually in our lives as we connect with the community and corporately as one body with one voice because life's short vapor and it's gone and the one thing as I said last week the most important thing happening on planet earth today that you can be involved in is what God is doing in His church that Jesus died for